chapter 22. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of uh, Matthew this morning. And uh, before we uh, turn to God's Word, let me just make a couple brief announcements. Uh, first of all, uh, next Sunday, uh, after the second service, we're going to be having a, a musician's gathering uh, for all, everyone who's involved. If you're on a music team or if you serve on the sound team, we're trying to uh, get everyone together to play some music, eat some food talk a little bit about the vision of uh, music here at Christ Church. So if that's you, if you're on the music team, please um, uh, put that on your calendar to come and be a part of that. You can ask Daniel uh, if you have more questions. Uh, let me just also add, if you're a musician, maybe uh, you play an instrument uh, and you'd love to get involved with our music team, I, This is uh, feel free to come and talk to me and, and let me know. Um, I should say that our, many of, at least on my teams, you know, we often won't practice on Sunday morning. We'll just kind of go through the songs really quickly. So you got to be able to just kind of take your instrument and play along and follow me, and we'll make it sound good. So if you're able to do that, um, even if you play some weird instrument, you know, I, the weirder the better. So bring the weird instruments on. I like them. So uh, come and talk to me. And so, uh, but if you're already on the teams, uh, there's a, a gathering next next Sunday. And then also next Sunday is uh, our college group's going to be meeting at 5.30 in the evening at the, at the Kelly's home. Nick and Angie, give us a wave there. Come on. Yeah, yeah everybody knows them. All right. Uh, and their address is in the bulletin. They're going to have some food and, and time to hang out. So if, if you're college-aged folks want to get to know some of the people in our church uh, in your phase of life. Uh, go hang out with the Kellys. So um, that's, uh, that's all we have for announcements. Um, looking at uh, Matthew chapter 22 together, uh, the first 14 verses, a parable of the wedding feast. Hear the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those uh, invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, who, all whom they found both, good, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, both the encouraging words of, of your grace that we find and also the challenging words that convict us, unsettle us, words like uh, this parable. And so we pray for your spirit to guide us, to give us understanding, to give us ears to hear and to receive uh, what you have for us. And also as we study your word, we pray that you would lead us to Christ, who is our Lord, our hope, our confidence. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So uh, we are talking this morning, our topic this morning is uh, damnation, which uh, may not be a, a topic you're particularly excited to talk about this morning, but uh, it's, it's very important for us to address this because I think uh, for many people in our culture, the doctrines of judgment, hell, damnation are um, ideas that uh, would cause many people to simply just reject Christianity out of hand because Christians believe in damnation or hell. And in fact, uh, Tim Keller, pastor in, in uh, New York, calls the doctrine of hell a defeater belief. And by a defeater belief, what he means is a belief is a, a defeater belief is, is a belief that causes someone to say, I would never even consider being a Christian. I won't even start the conversation. I mean, I won't even have a dialogue about it because I could never possibly believe in a God who sends people to hell. And so, end of discussion. And, uh, of course, there are many defeater beliefs that people have in our culture. You know, when they think about the Bible, maybe, you know, the way they view the Bible's understanding of gender or science or morality, however they, whatever they perceive that to be, and people say, because the Bible says these certain things about gender, science, morality, it's impossible for me to even consider being a Christian. And so one of our primary callings as Christians living in the world, in the modern world, is to help non-Christians create what you might call plausibility structures in their minds. And what a plausibility structure is, that they would begin to just have some framework. They would say, you know what, Christians, I've always thought of them as unintellectual, you know, hysterical, kind of overly emotional kinds of people. And actually, you know, Christians are, can be pretty thoughtful and loving, and some of what they're saying makes sense. I'm willing to open up and have a conversation. Not necessarily that they're ready to become a Christian, but willing to entertain it. The plausibility structure is formed. And actually, uh, we have some friends, good friends of ours in our home group, who uh, they just mentioned, told our whole home group this recently, that, you know, before they had met us, and, uh, they just thought all Christians were crazy. They said, I'd never even think about becoming Christians because Christians are crazy. Every Christian I ever met was crazy. And then we met you guys, and you, you're not crazy. So we'll come to your Bible study. You know, we'll come and learn. You know, we'll, have the, we'll start the discussion because the defeater belief is all Christians are crazy. And once the defeater belief is overcome, the plausibility structure is formed, and I'm willing to entertain the conversation. And so this morning, I want to attempt to create somewhat of a plausibility structure for you for the doctrine of damnation. And by damnation, I mean that those who reject the free offer to share in God's kingdom of love will find themselves at last in a state of eternal misery. Okay, uh, how could anyone in his or her right mind believe that God would lead people, send someone into a state of eternal misery? And, well, I, I tell you this very soberly. This is something I believe. There is no question that Jesus believed it. And uh, there's no question the Bible teaches it. And so this morning I want to highlight three things in this passage that uh, teaches us about the damned. Three insights that I think are important, maybe surprising for us as we come to a difficult topic like this, and this is what they are. The damned are invited, the damned are apathetic, and the damned are punished. Three things, and um, of course, like any of these topics, 
any topic in the Bible, even a difficult topic like this, it's a subject that leads us into the heart of Christ to know him more deeply. And so um, excited. Uh, hopefully uh, God's word will do that for this, us this morning. So first, the damned are invited. First thing that this passage tells us. Now, in some ways, um, damnation is kind of an unfortunate topic for a passage like this because uh, uh, this passage, really at the heart of this parable, is that Jesus is teaching um, not something uh, negative, but something really wonderful, that the kingdom of God is like a feast. Um, and that God is welcoming all people into uh, a, a wedding feast that he's setting for his son. You see this here in verse 1. So do you guys hear a buzzing? Do you hear that? Sorry. Oh, you can't do anything? Can we, maybe we turn it off? Is that all right? Oh, we can't do that. All right. Should I use a different mic? Would that help? Oh, Okay. Um, all right, all right, you can bear with me, sorry about that. So, um, okay, verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, uh, this little story tells us that God's kingdom is like a feast, it's like a party. And uh, you see that the emphasis on this, many times this passage is re repetition of the word invited, of that God is inviting people in, uh, and that the reason they're not there is simply that they would not come to his party. And so oftentimes when we think of damnation, we think of judgment, we think of hell, the picture that we have of God is that God is un unapproachable, he's impatient, uh, he's this angry tyrant who uh, throws people into hell that haven't kept all his laws well enough. And this is, it's just simply not the picture in this passage. Here, the picture is of a king. Uh, God is a father who's preparing a great feast for his son. And there's two groups of people that are invited into God's party, his kingdom that he's throwing. Two that are invited. First are his friends. He sends out these messengers to bring in his friends. And um, in this context, the friends that God is inviting in are, of course, the Jews, the Jews were God's uh, uh, chosen people in the Old Testament, and they were the first ones that were going to be invited into his kingdom. And he's, now Jesus, who's God's son, has come bringing the, the kingdom to them, and they've rejected They said they don't want to come into his kingdom and accept what he's brought. And so they don't, they don't come, and so the king says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find other people to invite to my party. So my friends won't come. And so this is what it says verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's a great picture. God is like this jovial king who's like, all right, my friends don't want to come. I'm going to go out into the highways and I'm going to get all the, you know, the the homeless and the poor, and I want to bring them in. I want to fill my great hall with all the kinds of people, whoever, whoever wants to come. And you'll notice that little point that Jesus makes there in the parable, that the king says for the bad and the good to come. The bad and the king. Anyone, there is no sin. There is no blemish in your life that can keep you out, keep you away from this invitation. God is inviting all people, no matter how bad you are. And so um, if we have this picture, you know, often when we think about hell, 
we think that there's all these people that are crying out to God and say, God, oh, have mercy on me. Please forgive me. I want to be with you. I want to spend eternity with you. I made a mistake. Will you give me a second chance? And God's saying, no, uh, you want to be with me, but no, I'm not going to have you with me. You stay down there in hell. And that's not the picture of what hell is. The, the people who are damned do not want to come. They do not want to accept the invitation. And, um, you know, I put on page three of your bulletin a quote from uh, uh, The Great Divorce, one of C.S. Lewis's great books, which, if you've never read The Great Divorce, is a, a story that Lewis invents about a um, busload of people from hell who go on holiday to visit kind of the outskirts of heaven. And so there's all these conversations that those who are in hell have with these people in heaven. And um, in one of the conversations, one of the ghosts is talking to George MacDonald. George MacDonald was like this preacher and writer uh, from uh, Scotland in the 19th century. And the, the, the guy from hell is asking George MacDonald, well, you know, all these people are coming on a bus ride from hell to heaven, can any of them stay here? You know, can you ever cross over from hell into heaven? And he has this great line where this is what he says. Never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And so the spirit of those in, who are in hell is not, please forgive me, please have mercy on me. The spirit of those in hell is pride. My will be done. And I don't want to live anywhere except where my will is done. I don't want to live in the place where God's will is done. And as uh, you know, John Milton in his great epic Paradise Lost put it, it is better to, uh, this is Satan speaking, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I'd rather have control of my own life in hell than to humble myself and become a servant in heaven, in, in God's presence. And so Jesus said, I that he did not. There we go. Did it go away? Just like that. What's that? It's automatic. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. There it is. All right. It's better. Woo. Okay. Uh, Jesus, so Jesus says that he did not come to judge the earth, but to save the earth, to open people, open the way into God's kingdom. And it's open to all people, to the good and the bad. And so if you resist the invitation of God to the end, if you say, I don't want to live in loving dependence on God. I don't want to live under his kind rule as my king. I don't want to give him the gratitude I owe him as my creator. God says you can have what you want. And that's what hell is. And Actually, that's the way the Bible talks. The Bible describes the wrath of God as God giving people over to their desires. People getting what they desire. And oftentimes, people desire that isolation. And, you know... You know that's true about people in your own life that maybe live a destructive life and they choose over and over again something that destroys them. And that's a, that's a, that's a characteristic of our sin is that we choose hell for ourselves. And so the first thing that we need to know about the, dam about the damned is that they are invited. 
And one of the things that tells us, it leads us to a second thing, is that the damned are not simply, you know, murderers and drug lords and, uh, you know, all the deeply evil people of the world. And we think, you know, of course, those are the people that are going to hell. But the damned are anyone who says to God, I will not accept your invitation. I do not want you in my life. Even though you made me, even though you give me everything I have, my life is mine. That is the spirit of hell. And so the second thing we learn in this passage, not only that the damned are invited, but second, that the damned are apathetic. And uh, I'll show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 4. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. And so here's God. He's making an open offer to, all, to, to his friends. He's saying, I've, I've, I've made, I'm making this huge party, this feast, and I'm inviting you all to come. And their response is, meh, I've got other things to do. I need to plant my onions you know, come into God's life and share in the party of the king. I have, to, I, I, I have work to do. And what this tells us is that the thing that has the potential to damn us unknowingly is something as plain as our work, something as everyday as our work. And you might say, you know, someone could end up in hell because they work too much, uh, because they cared too much about the work, and the answer is Absolutely. The people who lose the very meaning of their life, that, that lose that sense, like, I was made for God, I was made to bring him glory, I was made to know him and to walk with him. The people who lose that sense, they don't lose it generally by defying God and saying, I hate God, and I, these are all the reasons I'm going to go tell everyone why I hate God. No, the vast majority of people who lose that sense of meaning drift into it. They didn't even notice what happened. They just simply weren't paying attention. And... That's what Jesus says. They paid no attention. And you know, this is not just true in spiritual matters, right? I mean, most people who lose relationships with their children or the important people in their life, they didn't just say, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you. They just paid no attention. They were too busy with their work and the kids grew up and they never knew them. And, and then at the end, they would say, oh, I don't even know you. And the kid's like, I don't even know you. It's too late. And there's this tragic ending. And how did this tragic ending to the relationship come? It wasn't through this, like, obvious rebellion or defiance of the relationship. It was simply I wasn't paying attention. And I was giving too much time to my work. And so this is chilling, but there is something almost everyday and ordinary about the damned. They're just going through life. I'll tell you, actually, this is one of the biggest obstacles for me, personally, about the whole idea of hell. I'm, I'm sure if you've thought about it for a minute, you probably have the same obstacle. You know, you know someone who's not a Christian, doesn't love God, doesn't have a relationship with God, and, you're, and you, this is someone you deeply respect, someone that you learn from, you know, maybe they have a great marriage, maybe they're very kind and caring to you, and maybe they're a better person than you are, and you're thinking... You know, there's images in the Bible of fire, an eternal, you know, lake of fire, and this person in eternal misery forever and ever, and ages upon ages, and you just think, how horrific. You know, how can I, how can I imagine someone that's made with such dignity experience such suffering 
And if I ever saw someone like that, I'd want to get them out of it instantly. How could I not want to get them out of it? You know, this, how, could this, how does this make sense? Well, I'll tell you the things that's missing in that picture. Is that for all the people that we know, you know, even if someone is not, doesn't know the Lord, doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, but there's so much dignity to them, and there's so much we respect about them, all of that dignity is a borrowed dignity. It is God's grace in their life. That's why they have a loving marriage. That's why they care for their coworkers well. And that's why they're generous with you is because the Bible tells us that God is gracious to all people. He gives common grace to all people. You know, the, he makes the sun and the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And so there's all kinds of people who spend their whole life ignoring God, and yet he still pours out his grace upon them. But if you strip them of that grace, and they say, I want to be fully cut off from God forever, that grace is gone. And that dignity is gone. And the only thing that's left is a shadow of the person that they were, a kind of wraith. And it's the only thing that's left is this selfish, inward-turning person who doesn't want to give up what's theirs. And so you just, um, and this is, uh, you know, actually, if you uh, think of the Bible's image of fire for hell, what fire does is it deteriorates. The, the, the object that's being burned, it, it, it um, uh, uh, loses its substance. And that's what would happen to us if we were stripped of the grace that God gives to us every day to give us life and to give us dignity that we're made in his image and we reflect his glory. And if all that was left, um, I mean, just imagine, is there anything more miserable than thinking about yourself all the time? Constantly feeling offended and slighted, thinking everyone owes you. And you just imagine your pettiness and your moodiness and your bitterness and your selfishness uninhibited by the grace of God. That's all that you were was that part of you. And then you, it was given an eternity to dominate your person. Each one of us would become a horror. We would become a monster. And it's that's what we will become if we forever cut ourselves off from the grace of, and love of God. And we say, we want nothing of you. That grace will not be a part of us anymore. And so, if you insist, I don't want to be a part of God's feast. I don't want to live in dependence on his grace. We will be stripped of that dignity. And what's such a tragedy is that many people will simply unknowingly slip into that simply because they paid no attention to it. Just like other important things in our life that we simply paid no attention to, we can pay no attention to God. But, you know, there's another thing that the Bible uh, says that we just have to be frank about in this passage about damnation. It's not only that the damned have been invited. God has invited all people, the good and the bad, to come into his life, to have their sins forgiven, to be a part of his party. It's open welcome. There's nothing that will keep you away except your own desires. Um, and, it, and it's not only that the damned have drifted from God, uh, not through a blatant rebellion, but it's often just simply through apathy. I just wasn't paying attention. I was kind of indifferent to God. That's how we find ourselves to be damned. But we also have to add that this third thing, that the Bible says that the damned are punished. It's an important part of the doctrine of damnation. And the Bible is very clear that each one of us will stand before God and give an account for everything that we've done with our bodies in our life. 
And the Bible actually talks, it says that our sins must be paid for. You know, maybe you've heard that expression that the wages of sin is death. There's a payment that must be made for our sins. And, you know, I wish I could spend a whole sermon thinking about the importance. Why is it important to believe that God is a God who punishes? Um, I'll, I'll just tell you a couple reasons why it's important that we believe that God does punish things. Some of you have experienced things in your life where people have done really evil things to you. And maybe no one knows about it. Maybe it's been done in secret. And it's never been exposed. And that person has never been held accountable. Well, just imagine, that has happened billions of times on this planet. That people have done great crimes to other human beings. And there's been no accountability for it. And for this world to be made right, those things must be named and punished. And there's coming a time where God will name every evil that has been done against us, but also every evil that has been done by us. And that is, will be an essential part of the healing of this creation, is for God to do that. And what it turns out is, is the only way that we can love people that have really done evil to us, that have really harmed us, is if we believe that God will hold them accountable so that I don't have to. If there's no God that is going to hold them accountable, what am I going to do? I'm going to get vengeance. I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to make things right. But when I believe that God will hold people accountable, then I can... Then I, Uh, can approach people in peace. I can forgive, even when I've been harmed greatly. But the Bible also says that God is slow to anger. So even though it says it's so important that he is a God who punishes, that he holds this world accountable, he's also a God who's slow to anger. He's given people time to turn from their selfish ways and turn to him. That's why God has not come yet. Why are we waiting for him to come and set all things right? Is he's giving people an opportunity to receive his forgiveness, to receive his pardon. But even after we hear some of these things about why is it important that we believe that God is a God who punishes, I know for many of us when we hear that, there's something that sounds primitive to it, believe in, believing in a, you know, an angry, punishing God. And the punishment in this parable, I have to say, is brutal. All right, Look at verse 5, what it says. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So it's quite graphic. You know, here's this king who's thrown this party, and no one wanted to come to the party. Now they did when he sent his servants. They killed his servants. So you understand he's going to be angry about that. But then he sends an army against their city and levels the city and burns it. And you're like, whoa, okay. What's going on there? And actually, there's something that's being brought up here that's going to be an important theme in the next few chapters of, of Matthew. The destruction of a city. And the city that's being referred to here is actually specifically Jerusalem. Because Jesus has is come to Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life when he's giving this parable. And he's in Jerusalem for the Passover week. And they, he has come as God's son saying, I'm bringing God's kingdom and they are going to crucify him. And Jesus is saying, if you reject God's vision for a kingdom, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of peace, and you instead want to take on the Romans militarily, that's actually what your plan is. That's what you're looking for from a Messiah, someone who will be a military leader. Then you will get a face-off with the Romans. And what's going to happen is your city is going to be leveled, and the temple is going to be destroyed, and your city is going to be burned, and you're going to be killed. And so he's making a prophecy to them that if they resist God's purposes for them, their city within this generation will be destroyed. And if some of you know the history, in 70 AD, within a generation of, of Jesus' uh, ministry, 
Jerusalem was uh, uh, sieged, there, uh, was destroyed by the Romans. The temple was destroyed. And so there's a specific historical reference for this parable. But also this parable, uh, in this parable, we learn a couple things about the kinds of people that God punishes. And I think there's actually some surprise to what we see here. So a couple things. Who does God punish? First, this says, this parable tells us that God punishes the proud. And, um, you know, we didn't read this in chapter 21. The passage right before what we just read tells us that Jesus told this parable to, uh, uh, to the chief priests and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus is speaking this kind of threatening passage about, you know, God's anger and God's wrath and God's punishment, he's speaking it to religious leaders. And the religious leaders are the ones that he thinks actually need to hear this. And, you know, I know for many of you, you know, when you think about God's wrath, many of us think, you know, wasn't God, it was kind of like the Bible in the Old Testament. God was angry and full of wrath. And then Jesus came along and he's now kind of preached the God of love and grace. He's kind of softened the God of the Old Testament. Well, you may not know this, but our whole doctrine of hell you know, eternal misery. It comes from Jesus. That's basically his doctrine. I mean, we, don't know, we hardly know anything else about it except what Jesus taught us. And so there, there's certainly not, if anything, certainly God's grace increases with Jesus, but also the images of his, his wrath and judgment also increase with Jesus' teaching. And, um, and for many people, you know, they think that, gosh, if I believe in a God who's a judge, who sends people to hell, isn't that going to make me kind of self-righteous? You know, I'm going to be pointing out all these people that you're going to go to hell and you're going to go to hell and it's going to make me a really unpleasant person and I'm going to look down on other people and there's going to be this sense of superiority. But when we look at Jesus' teaching, actually his most pointed teaching about judgment and about hell is pointed at religious leaders. You know, when he says, how do you expect to escape the condemnation of hell? He's talking to, you know, pastors and priests and, you know, theologians and people who are leading God's people who are self-righteous and um, they look down on other people and they think, we're God's special people and you're, all the people outside are dirty pagans and God doesn't love them. And that sense of pride and superiority is the thing that gets crushed the most by God's wrath and by uh, his judgment. And so um, it, it turns out that believing in God's judgment, if we really believe it, is the thing that humbles us more than anything. That I have no, I deserve nothing before God and that he received me. How could I look down on anyone, any neighbor, whether they're Christian or not a Christian? How could I think that, they're, that I'm better than them? No, I deserve God's punishment and God has forgiven me. And so it's actually believing in God's wrath that actually gives me the humility to welcome in all people, as Jesus says, both the bad and the good. But, you know, some of you might say, okay, all right. Uh, Jesus condemns the self-righteous, kind of holier-than-thou kind of people. All right, I'll go along with that. I don't really like them either. So, great. He, that's fine if he has harsh words for them. But, actually, that's, those aren't the only people that are condemned in this passage. It's not only that God punishes the proud, but also we see that God punishes the presumptuous. And this is an important sobering addition that Jesus gives to this parable. You see it there in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? 
And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now this is a puzzling little addition, because here's this king, he's very jovial, he's welcoming all the poor, and you think, what a guy, you know, he's, all the poor brought into this feast, and then this one poor guy's got the wrong clothes on, and then not only is the king upset about it, but then he's throw him into the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth, I mean, this seems like a little bit of an overreaction. But uh, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that this man just kind of comes into the king's presence and he has no sense of honor for the king and all that the king's done for him to bring him in. There should be respect to him. And so one of the questions we have to ask is, we are those people who were on the highways, we were far outside, and Jesus brought us in to his family, brought us into his kingdom, and we have to ask ourselves that question, are we wearing the wedding garments? Are we wearing the wedding garments? There are people in God's house who aren't wearing the wedding garments, and we have to ask that of ourselves. So what are the wedding garments? Well, let me tell you a couple places in the New Testament that talk about this metaphor of putting on clothes. The first is Galatians 3.27. This is what it says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what Paul says is the wedding garment we're supposed to be wearing is Christ himself. We're supposed to receive God's forgiveness. We're supposed to be, by faith, we trust in Jesus' righteousness who clothes us. And that's that word, put on, is a garment that you're putting on. And then also in Galatians 3.12, this is what it says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so that when we put on Christ and we receive God's forgiveness, we say, I believe in Jesus, he's forgiven my sins, and I believe I'm clothed in his righteousness so that God accepts me, that should cause me to be more compassionate to the people around me. I should be humbled by that, and I should be generous and kind. And so it should change my life. And if I think that I can come into God's, fam God's family and my life isn't going to change at all, there's not a spark of like humility and compassion that begins to stir up in my heart. But I'm just the same old person. And I mistreat people. And I think that, you know, oh, someone wrongs me and I can just harbor bitterness against them and, never, and I never forgive anyone. I never forgive anyone. I'm never changed. We should be warned. We might not be wearing the wedding garments. But this raises a problem. Right? Am I, have I been compassionate enough? <laughs> have I been humble enough? Have I been kind enough? You know, and how do I know whether I'm wearing the garments? I've done enough to say I'm in the garment club. Well, um, I think one of, the Bible, one of the things the Bible's insistent upon is that my confidence should never be in my good works, but in Christ's good works. And as much as truly being in Christ will make me humble and compassionate, it will change you if you really believe in Jesus. Your life will begin to change. My humility and my compassion is never my confidence. And you see this here in verse 13 again. Look at these verses. Look at what it says. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's so amazing, so chilling about those words is that all those things will happen to Jesus 
in the coming chapters of Matthew. This very week that he speaks those words, he will be bound. He will suffer. He will be sent outside of the city. Darkness will fall on him when he dies on the cross. He's the one who's going to weep and his teeth are going to gnash. And my confidence before God will never be that I was compassionate enough or that I was kind enough or I was humble enough, but my confidence is that Jesus took my damnation for me on the cross. He was cast into the outer darkness for me. He wept and gnashed his teeth in my place. And so the answer to the question, you know, how could I ever believe in a God who damns? Is because the God who damns is the God who himself was damned for us. All those threats, God himself endured. And so the one thing that I can't say about him is that he's not good. Whoever he is, he may be mysterious, he may be perplexing, he may be strange, but I know that he's good and I know that he's loving and I know that he is who I should go to with my trust. And so this morning we praise Jesus, the one who was damned in our place so that all of us might be brought into God's great feast in his presence. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we know that it is in love that you speak to us these challenging words. Give us faith to receive that love. Give us faith to receive all that Christ has done for us. We are humbled that he would be bound, the righteous one, the innocent one, the almighty would be bound. The one who is light would be sent out into the darkness. The one who is joy supreme would weep as he was forsaken by his God. Lord, we are moved by this love. Give us faith that your same compassion and humility would mark us as a community. Clothe us with Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.